It took tens of millions of years for plate tectonics to build the Rocky Mountains. It took millions more for glaciers, wind, and river to carve the amazing topography that we see today. And in 2016, it took 100 miles of that terrain plus 19 hours to make runner Claire Gallagher an overnight sensation in the world of ultramarathons and a big voice in environmental activism. My name is Catherine Mihimaki, and I'm here today with Claire Gallagher. Claire, thank you for joining me on All for Earth. Thanks so much for having me, Catherine. First of all, what was that race in 2016, and why in the world did you do it? Uh, that race is the Leadville 100, which is a 100-mile trail race um, uh, near this tiny old mining town called Leadville. And I'm still kind of unsure why I did it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was it was a pretty naive thing to do. Um, I had only started doing ultramarathons, uh, just dabbling in in the previous year leading up to Leadville. And basically, I moved um, back from Asia where I had been teaching English uh, via the teaching fellowship program, Princeton in Asia. And I moved to Boulder, Colorado, and I got in with this group of trail runners and everyone was doing 100 milers. And I was like, oh, I guess that's what I'll do too. I'm, so I signed up for my first one and, and that happened to be Leadville. <laughs> that is totally my impression of Boulder, Colorado, is that everyone who's there is some extreme athlete. Um, yeah, it's so, kind of sick. <laughs> so I, it seems important to note that, you know, you're not doing road running. So you're doing trail running, like you said. Um, and so that seems to bring you into contact with the environment in kind of a unique way. Um, can you talk a little bit about how the environment impacts your experience as an ultra runner? Yeah, it's so incredible to spend time, a lot of time in in mountain terrain. Most usually my races are in mountainous terrain. So in Leadville in particular, it's the entire race happens above almost 10,000 feet. Um, and it gets up to almost 13,000 feet. So you're in true alpine terrain. It's like granite boulders covered in lichen, you know, like psychedelic green lichen um, <laughs> that like crust. And, um, and there's wildflowers that are, that are just so delicate. You know, it's dusty. It's hot. You can't breathe, um, at least in the summer. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I spend a lot of time around the world in these types of environments. You know, they're different based on the place. And I feel innately connected when I go a few days without a long run outside. I, I start to get jittery and, you know, I just want my feet to be touching the ground and to have silence and to hear the elements. Um, yeah, it's pretty much what I live for. So, Claire, you do a lot of environmental activism, but what, what does that actually look like? I mean, you have a website with a, a blog, you have social media accounts. Um, what does that look like for you? Um, a lot of my activism happens on social media because that's where people follow me, uh, follow my running. So I use it as an opportunity to educate my followers on what's happening, whether it's in Colorado like with a climate bill coming up, um, or or broadly, um, and and I'll write specific captions. I'll give links to petitions. I will write representatives' phone numbers down. Um, so that's via social media, and then in person, I, I give a lot of talks to explain why it matters to care about the environment if you like to run, or if you like to be outside. Um, and then I've done actual lobbying 
um, in both Colorado and D.C., uh, like climate change lobbying, which it's it, that sounds almost it's a negative like word lobbying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And but it's kind of crazy when you're just asking your representative and senators, hey, can you do something about climate change, please? <laughs> Right. And, and you've done that. What it is. You've done that one on one, but you've also testified, right? Correct. Yeah. I've lobbied in D.C. one on one with this amazing organization called Protect Our Winners. And then I've testified in in the Colorado state legislature on on a climate bill. Yeah. And then you, you supplement all of that with longer form writing on your blog. Um, so, you know, details of what air quality, poor air quality is down to the science of what particulate matter is and ozone. And um, it seems like you're hitting lots of different areas of activism and outreach. Yeah, I try to do as much as possible. But it's interesting because I'm not a traditional activist or organizer in the way, you know, someone for Greenpeace is. And so I try to make it relevant to my community. And my community is is a bunch of runners. (laughs) So so that's why hitting the messages with various forms is, is important and ultimately getting people together to run. So there's this incredible event called Running Up for Air, mm-hmm. which was created by this genius trail runner in Salt Lake City, Jared Campbell, which gets people doing laps of a mountain while the air pollution is really bad. So in Salt Lake City, the inversion is awful in the winter because cold air gets trapped underneath warm air. And, and the pollution from, from cars and industrial power plants and trucks gets stuck and, and you literally run up through the inversion. And, and this event is kind of masochistic because you're running for like 6, 12 or 24 hours. And so it's just <laughs> genius because it got a lot of media attention. So then you have news outlets saying, you know, why are these runners running and up Grander Peak? Oh, because the air pollution is so bad in Salt Lake City, and we should do something about it. And and that event last year raised forty thousand dollars for a nonprofit called Breathe Utah. And and you guys actually, um, I, I saw some of the photos from that. You ran for part of it with face masks on, right? Uh, yeah. Well, actually, this year the inversion wasn't that bad, but in past years they've had to wear face masks. Exactly. Um, so speaking of races, I mean, the Leadville 100 is not the only ultramarathon you've won. Um, and this summer, you just had a huge win um, of the Western States 100 in the Sierra Nevada um, in 17 hours and 23 minutes. So um, big congratulations for that. That's a huge win for you. Um, Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. I, when, when did you realize that your athletic success might give you a platform to address environmental issues on kind of a bigger stage? Uh, it was almost exactly when I decided after Leadville's in 2016, I had um, quit my job as an emergency room scribe because <laughs> I thought I thought I might apply to med school and it just was not checking out. So uh, and then I won Leadville and I decided, oh, OK, I can try and do this quote full time. Um, it basically is a lot of dirt bagging when you're in a niche endurance sport that doesn't have big paychecks. <laughs> so I landed a, f- a few sponsorships. And that fall, though, uh, you know, the 2016 elections happened. And it was at that time where I felt, oh, if I have the privilege and opportunity to be a full time runner, and this just happened to 
America, um, you know, the election of Trump, mm-hmm. I thought I need to take my job really seriously. And the, f- and the fact that I'm seeing public lands constantly, I'm seeing climate change firsthand, um, I'm traveling around the world and talking to various people about their opinions on climate change and things, I thought I need to make this as much part of my job as running is. So it kind of was like, if I'm going to be a full-time runner, I need to be more than than just that. Um, so... Well, and, and you yeah, have it's a, been like that ever since you're sponsored by Patagonia, among others, and mm-hmm. um, they don't just tolerate your environmental activism. They actually encourage it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so you just returned from a trip to Alaska that they sponsored. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this uh, Patagonia has completely blown open my mind to, to what it means to be, a, you know, an ambassador, an athletic ambassador, as they call us. Uh you know, we need to be more than that. And and thus, <laughs> I get a call in early June from none only than Tommy Codwell, one of the world's greatest climbers of all time. <laughs> he, he, was he was one like, of the he was one of the climbers in uh, the Don Wall and has a cameo in Free Solo. Yes, exactly. Um, and he goes and he's a Patagonia ambassador. And uh, and he and I actually are both have roles as global sports activists now. So so that adds to it where Patagonia is encouraging, um, you know, they basically, it's our, it's our job to be more activists. But um, anyways, he calls and says, hey, there's an opportunity to go to a climate change summit in Fort Yukon, Alaska, which is in the Arctic Circle. Uh, and the Gwich'in people live there, a, a tribe that's been living there for um, millennia. Uh, and he was like, and then we're going to do an expedition in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. <laughs> do you want to come? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, sure. When? You know, thinking it would be like in a year. And he goes, oh, it's in 10 days. <laughs> and I didn't even tell him that I had this huge race coming up, uh, Western states. And I thought about it for an hour. And and the it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to to go and learn from – and it was uh, the Gwich'in people are, and and everyone in the Arctic right now at all latitudes or at all um, across the globe in the Arctic latitudes are experiencing such severe climate change impacts as the Arctic warms twice as fast as the rest of the world. And and so we just learned firsthand how these hunters, um, people who live in almost entirely off the land, 80% of their diet is, is from hunting and fishing. Um, and they're they're dealing with food scarcity as populations change. You know, moose, caribou, salmon, geese, they can't hunt and fish with the same reliability as they could in the past. So that was just completely mind-blowing, mind really. And then um, we went and did a really big expedition in the refuge. <laughs> Um, and I'm laughing just because I'm so happy I, I came out alive. Uh, we <laughs> climbed this. <laughs> we climbed the second highest peak in the Brooks Range and um, pack rafted for a few days. And um, you know, there's 24 hours of sunlight, and we saw thousands of caribou in this area of the refuge called the 1002 area. That's what the oil companies call it, um, where there could be potential drilling as early as this fall if um, a bill in the House of Representatives doesn't pass this summer to, to stop it. So it was just a mind-blowing trip to see what's at stake. 
And and you guys were there in part to raise awareness um, longer term for the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and the Gwich'in community, but also really targeted at this House bill. Um, is that right? Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. And this this fight to protect the Arctic has been going on um, and, and, the, and Gwich'in people because Gwich'in are intrinsically linked to the porcupine caribou herd. That's the majority of their food source. And, and the porcupine caribou herd thrive and give birth to their babies in the refuge. So if the refuge were to be drilled, the Gwich'in would be inevitably greatly impacted um, in terms of food security. So, and there's been efforts to make the refuge a wilderness area for the basically the past three decades um, or even longer. And Patagonia has been <laughs> a part of this since the 90s. If you look back at their catalogs, you can see that they've been trying to get more people talking about the refuge and, and sending letters to representatives and senators to make it a wilderness area. Uh, and this is this is honestly the absolute most important time in this juncture because of how threatening um, the Trump administration has made this new oil leasing. It's the closest it's ever been from from truly wrecking this place. Yeah. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit more about what your experience was when you were there, knowing that your race was coming up, but also knowing that you have this amazing opportunity to interact with people who are even more on the front lines of what's happening in the world and sort of how you balanced that. I mean, is it something that weighed on you that you were potentially um you know, sacrificing your normal pre-race training for for this opportunity? Yeah, 100% is a very weird mental place uh, to be in. But once I got up to Alaska to Fort Yukon at this climate summit and then in the refuge with Tommy, another Patagonia ambassador, Luke Nelson, and a photographer, Austin Sidek, uh, everything just melted away. Like, it didn't matter in a way. I thought if I don't run Western states this year, it truly doesn't matter. Um, to be in such a wild place was was life-changing. And to hear people like Tommy and Luke and Austin say it's the most wild place they've ever been. And they've, they've been everywhere. Like <laughs> I feel like I've been to a lot of mountains. They've been to a, truly a lot of mountains. And, and to see a place that has no signs of humans – there are no trails there. Um, there's no. There's no landmarks. There's no nothing that that humans have left, and it it was so wild. Um, and it was honestly really difficult terrain to move in. We had heavy packs, like fifty pound pack, uh, and I was following the best mountain athletes in the world. Um, I remember one one day we were approaching this mountain, um, which is almost nine thousand feet, Mount Hoobly. And but and you start really low, so it's a lot of relief. You have to gain like six thousand feet over the course of we did it in basically a day. Um, we were in this drainage, uh, and it was just the loosest rock and scree you could possibly imagine. There's no trail, and I'm just trying to keep my balance with this heavy pack on these loose rocks, trying to keep up. And and you know, I'm thinking of my mom. I'm like, oh, I really just don't want to die. And uh, and it was in those moments, though, that I realized this is this is worth it to be in a place that is pushing me to my limits to see a place that really should be left alone. Um, 
And as Luke said, he goes, Claire, this is gratitude training. And I'm like, what do you mean? I like, I'm not feeling that like grateful right now because at the time I was like pretty stressed out. I didn't want to sprain an ankle. And <laughs> he goes, well, when you get to the Western States Trail, you know, in 10 days, you're going to be really grateful for that trail. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, yeah, so it was a lesson in, in gratitude training for how how wonderful it is to have, you know, a, a beautiful buttery single track trail, uh, but also how precious it is it is to have a place that that doesn't have those human impacts um one of the things that fascinates me about your activism is that you do such a wonderful job of merging the really big picture you know these are wild places beautiful places but then being very directed about you know this bill house bill 1156 and these candidates and you know this particular issue you know going into what are the definitions of poor air quality and you know why is it important for you in your activism to get to that level of specificity instead of sort of the really arm wavy can't we just save the earth, everyone. Right. Uh, well, that's kind of you. And I, I think the level of corruption and attacks on our environment, our air, um, pretty much everything we need as humans and as Americans, uh, they're so strategic and pointed. And if you really read into what's happening from the Department of Interior, Department of Agriculture, all the way down. And those attacks are very pointed. And in order to combat such blatant attacks on our our rights as humans and Americans to breathe clean air, to, to, to be in a natural space, uh, we have to play the game, right? And that requires engaging in democracy. And that's the whole point of having this amazing thing called a democracy in America. And and basically, I had to give myself a crash course. Um, really, it was in 2016 when, I, you know, uh, these, these assaults on our environment started happening. Basically, when we, when Trump pulled us out of the uh, climate, uh, the Paris Climate Agreement, and I thought, wait, how how is this possible? You know, like, why isn't my senator doing something about this? Why aren't my rep- my representative? Um, the the fact that I didn't really even know how bills and and engaging with our representatives work until I googled it <laughs> shows showed me that I I want to educate you know people who follow me for running. Um, I, I feel it's my duty to use my platform to. To, to actually tell them something useful, like, not just platitudes about about beauty and mountains, you know. And, and does that help you kind of get beyond just preaching to the choir? Because I would imagine that the ultra-running community is already pretty um, environmentally aware, um, but that doesn't mean everyone is focused in a, um, a uniform action that can actually make a difference. Correct. Yeah. I think giving direct actions and explaining specific bills, you know, whether it's for climate policy or something like protecting the Arctic refuge is is really important to give concrete things for people to at least a starting point to sink their teeth into. 
And so if you if you broadly care about the environment, that's great. But what what does that actually mean? What are you doing? What are you reading? What are you Googling? And I found, yeah, the more specific I get, especially with addressing like representatives in Colorado who don't vote for the environment or for or for climate like I have no problem tagging them in my social media and calling them out because <laughs> ultimately they're representing us like it's their job um, and and yes that has expanded my audience to beyond an echo chamber and, well, and, and you also point. I mean you went to Washington DC and met with both senators or I shouldn't say you met mm-hmm. with both senators. You met with one senator and the other senator's staff, right? You were underwhelmed Correct, by that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, uh, Colorado has two senators right now, Senator Michael Bennett, who met with um, this climate org I was I was with called Protector Winners. He was absolutely wonderful and gracious with his time and has voted for the environment time and time again. And then Senator Cory Gardner sent us a super young staff member who didn't um, – Really listen, and it's just crazy because Colorado's recreation economy is ginormous. It's so huge that I think it's like $29 billion it ranks in every year. And for a senator to not meet with the CMO, chief marketing officer of Aspen Ski Resorts about climate change and snowpack, (laughs) like, what are you doing, dude? (laughs) Who are you meeting with? Like, you know, Colorado's economy runs on on skiing in the winter and snowboarding and uh, or these mountain towns completely rely on it. And so and it goes the same with the representative on the Western Slope. Scott Tipton has has yet to ever meet with um, these ski resort uh, executives and things. So who are really concerned about thousands of people they employ as uh, snowpack decreases due to climate change. And it seems like, you know, you are so passionate about these issues that you would probably pursue them even if Patagonia weren't your sponsor. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about what sponsorship really means and what role Patagonia plays in your activism um, and and really what the um, role is for sponsors in any professional athletes um, you know public life and and what they what they do with their platform yeah it's a tricky realm and I definitely I, I wouldn't have a sponsor if if they cared about what I was saying and that's why I'm so so grateful f- to be so aligned with with Patagonia um, I'm honestly motivated to do more because of how much they're doing to see a big, big brand, a big company um, going above and beyond to, to, to track their supply chains and carbon footprint. They're going to be carbon neutral across all realms of their supply chain by 2025. Um, so that includes factories, um, you know, in Asia. I have to tell this this story. Patagonia basically has has gone into this analysis of every single thing that that has a carbon footprint that they do and they found that the a factory in Japan that weaves uh, the puffy jackets that are so popular right mm-hmm. like they're called micro puffs and it's a huge huge item that they sell a lot of it, the factory uses a ton of energy in the sewing machines to create these jackets cuz the weave is very specific and it takes uh, really slow, slow sewing. So the, so the sewing students are consuming a ton of energy. And, and Patagonia goes, oh my gosh, if we could get 
this factory to run on renewable energy, it would reduce our overall carbon footprint by something like 10%. Like that's how much energy this this factory uses. And they go to this factory in Japan, offer all of this portfolio of options of uh, going to solar because it's a really sunny area. And the factory goes, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Why wouldn't it? (laughs) Yeah, they're like, okay, makes sense to us. So, you know, that's in the process of happening right now. And and the beautiful part of that is that factory doesn't just make Patagonia items. It makes a ton of other big brands in the industry, you know. Um, and so those brands are benefiting by the effort of Patagonia. And and if every big brand was going through that effort, the, the outdoor apparel industry would actually be moving a needle, in, especially in you know, the fashion industry and clothing industries, which is a pretty noxious uh, impact environmentally. So um, it's just an example. If everyone was doing their due diligence, um, the world would be a better place. (laughs) Do do you think athletes have the ability to move their sponsors? Um, Because you've talked about sort of Patagonia giving you opportunities, but, um, you know, is that some and and Patagonia giving the entire sporting industry, um, outdoor sporting industry, uh, a push. But, you know, what role do the athletes play in that? I think it's it's unfortunate. Athletes, you know, my friends, uh, these people I've just become in a community with over the last few years uh, have a lot less say than you would think. And these big corporations that are publicly traded really care about their bottom lines. So, you know, it's expensive to do the right thing sometimes and and to make your entire line of recycled polyester instead of just one item or one shirt that you use in an ad campaign. Oh, we make sure it's out of recycled bottles. That's great. But what percentage of your entire lines is made from recycled polyester? That's the question consumers should be asking because brands are really, really skilled at greenwashing through marketing campaigns. <laughs> right. Um, so I'm, I'm curious uh, what you're moving on to next. Um, are, are there um, specific issues that are on the table um, for you? I mean, obviously, the it's not like you're done with the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Um, mm-hmm. and, and what's next for you as a runner? I'll be I'll be continuing to focus on climate policy at a Colorado level uh, and also national when when I get the opportunities. But uh, specifically, I think so much action comes locally, and I'm really focused on a wilderness bill right now for Colorado that would protect over 400,000 acres across the state, uh, and we really need one of our senators, Senator Cory Gardner, to to speak up um, just to have an opinion on it. Um, so thus, that, that, that pushes me to really care about 2020 elections. Um, it's going to be a huge focus of mine. And, and he's up for re-election in 2020. Correct. Yeah. And it's just enough is enough. Like, if you claim to care about public lands and clean air, you need to actually vote for those things. Uh, running-wise, I'll continue to race, uh, and and do what inspires me. It's it's important to not overrace. So uh, I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to race next. But what, what's the schedule? Something. Is it a, like a one 100 mile race a year, or is it one a season? Or um, you know what what's yeah, a typical load for you? It's 
I I think one a year is plenty. Other people are, are crazy and do five a year. Uh, but at this point in my career and life, I don't think I'll do another 100 this year. Um, but I'll definitely do other races. I love 50Ks and 50 milers. So we'll well, see and, what and you are told. <laughs> you fill your spare time <laughs> with trying to set fastest known times in beautiful places too. Yeah, I've really started to love the the process of a, of an FKT or fasted snowed time. Um, exploring national parks via a really hard effort is kind of the, like ultimate day for me because <laughs> <laughs> uh, because it uh, it motivates me and encourages me to do research about a place I wouldn't normally know about, and then and then to have like a, a race effort uh, with friends as crew or whatnot is is so special. Um, so we'll see what's what's in line. I need to do some things around Colorado for sure this summer. Excellent. Well, Claire, thank you so much for joining me. Um, this was so inspirational, and um, I definitely need to get my running shoes on, um, but also my activist <laughs> shoes on. So um, thank you for hitting both, both areas. Um, this was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Catherine. Claire Gallagher is a professional ultramarathoner and environmentalist. You can read about her exploits and her advocacy at her website, claire.run. That's C-L-A-R-E dot run. You can find links to her writing and her social media accounts there. Please subscribe to our podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, be well. All for Earth is a production of the Princeton Environmental Institute and the Princeton University Office of Communications in collaboration with Princeton's Council on Science and Technology and assistance from the Office of Instructional Support Services and the Office of Information Technology. Our executive producer is Margaret Koval and our audio engineer and editor is Daniel Kearns. The opinions expressed here represent the views of the individuals involved and not those of the university. Princeton podcasts are available on all major distribution channels, including Spotify and the Apple and the Google Podcast apps.